In many ways, Jeff Bezos would seem to have it all. But when is enough enough? In the new book, Career Self-Care, Find Your Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment at Work, Inc. Magazine columnist and Seattle-area author Minda Zetlin points to the Amazon founder's push for financial incentives in the company's search for a second headquarters as a prime example of what she calls the dirty little secret about success. Second sudden announcement today from Amazon canceling plans to build a giant corporate center, one of its new headquarters here in New York City. After Amazon's choice of Queens, New York backfired due to the community's objections over financial incentives, a report by Bloomberg News revealed that Amazon and Bezos had originally been motivated in part by envy over the incentives that Elon Musk and Tesla had gotten from Nevada for building their gigafactory there despite much different circumstances. He started getting very put out by the fact that Amazon executives were celebrating getting tens of millions in incentives as opposed to billions like Elon Musk. And so he was consumed with envy. Zetlin sees in this anecdote a lesson for the rest of us. We spend our whole lives, right, pursuing success. But where is that spot exactly that you get to that is success? If you're the richest person in the world, which he was at that time, and you're still not satisfied, you're still not happy, you're still jealous of somebody else, it just seems to illustrate that there is no there there. You write in the book, by any reasonable measure, you have to consider that Bezos, who started the whole thing from a garage in Bellevue, Washington, might be the most successful entrepreneur of all time. You'd think all this would make him happy. Instead, he was jealous of Elon Musk. Gosh, I wonder if a Twitter bid is in the works for, <laughs> from Amazon and Jeff Bezos. I'll we'll set that aside for a second. Okay, which would be worse? <laughs> Jeff Bezos owning Twitter, Elon Musk owning Twitter. I don't know. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Coming up on the GeekWire podcast, we explore the concept of career self-care looking at some familiar leaders and companies through a different lens and re-examining our own lives and careers in the process. My name is Minda Zetlin. I'm a writer and a contributing editor at Inc. Magazine, where I write the laid-back leader column. And I'm the author of Career Self-Care, Find Your Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment at Work. Minda, it's great to have you on the show. We have had such interesting conversations on the sidelines of the GeekWire Summit, our tech conference every year, which you've covered for several years as part of your column. And I was looking forward to this in part because we get to just have a conversation here and not be interrupted by all sorts of other things going on around. So I'm really glad to have you here. Me too. Career Self-Care is your new book. And it really draws on a lot of the lessons and the insights that you've picked up writing your ink column and doing other reporting over the years. Also, some of your own personal experiences. And the thing that struck me in reading it is that it's a recognition of the fact that work and life are no longer separate. And it's looking at those two things and all of one's life in a very holistic way. The book also has tons of interesting anecdotes that relate to the Seattle tech audience and GeekWire, Bill Gates, and some of the startup founders, and we'll get to those in a bit. But why did you decide that this was an important book to write? Well, 
it's really grew up out of my column. So the column is called The Laid Back Leader, and I've been writing it for um, more than a decade. And I cover all kinds of topics, as, as our conversation just showed. I cover current events, but also a lot of stuff about productivity and success and doing better at your job or your company, if, because ink readers are mostly entrepreneurs. And the more I was writing about things that had to do with mindfulness and taking this kind of holistic big picture approach to the human being in the job, the more response I was getting from readers that they really liked that. You know, the nice thing about writing an online column is that you can see, at least if they, if they show it to you, you can see exactly who's clicking on what you wrote and when and why to some degree. And so that kind of pushed me in the direction of doing more of that, but even more to the point I was learning as I was doing this because I was working seven days a week at one time and I was probably grumpy and impossible to be around. And my husband lived in the same house with me where I was working at home, but nevertheless missed me. And then one Christmas, I read about a copywriter in Indonesia who literally worked herself to death. Now you may or may not remember this story, but it was like a great big wake up call for me. And I thought, this isn't really a good way to be living my life. At the same time, because I was writing for Inc., I was talking to all kinds of career and productivity experts who were saying, you know, you have to defend this off time and you have to make sure to take a vacation and you have to do all these things that we talk about in work-life balance. Not that that's a great term, but that's the term that tends to get used. And it kind of all came together. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, there's a book here. I mean, I think writers tend to go in that direction anyway. And so I set about writing a proposal and talking to agents and saying, this column of mine deserves to grow up into a book. And um, now it has. At the end of each chapter, you have exercises that people can do basic things that are simple activities that can reinforce some of the behaviors that you write about and the habits that you explain can lead to this better sense of self-care for your whole person and your career. Was there one or two that really resonated for you in your own career, in your own life that you've implemented and seen real benefits from? By the way, I guessed you would bring up power journaling when I brought that up. I've been a journal writer my whole life, really, since I was a teenager. And for years and years and years, it just really took the form of me dumping whatever was going on in my constantly changing moods onto paper, which in itself was hugely helpful. When crisis hit, I would have to sit down and write. When somebody I was very close to died, it didn't become real for me until I wrote it in my journal. So I couldn't do it for several days. It was just my kind of paper alter ego. Then I watched the three minute video about bullet journaling, which I recommend to everyone, which is a completely contrary view of journaling. It breaks it down into bullet points and it organizes tasks and helps, you know, you can lay out your week, you can lay out your plans. And this simple, brilliant innovation, it calls on you to number the pages of your journal and write an index so you can find stuff later, which sounds super simple. And it is super simple. And it's incredibly powerful because you can always go back and find something so you can write anything into your journal and know you're going to find it later. And when I kind of put what I'd been doing all this time together with that, together with some work I've been doing about setting goals and setting 
deadlines for taking steps towards those goals, it all kind of comes together into this very powerful object that's like basically a notebook that costs, you know, $7 at the bookstore that both contains my plans, my goals for the month, my goals for the week. At the end of the month or the week, I look back over them and see which things, which tasks, this task and intention are two very different things, which we can get into, but which tasks I've accomplished and which I haven't. If I haven't, I put them off. So it keeps me honest to the bigger things that I want to accomplish because all of us get overwhelmed with the day-to-day urgent, but not necessarily important stuff that we all get flooded with. And the journal centers you and it's still where I write down what's going on in my moods as well. There's one other thing that actually I recommend to everyone. At the end of the day, I take like 30 seconds to write down what I did that day. If you're someone like me and you're super self-critical and you always get to the end of the day and think, damn, I'm, I'm so useless. What have I gotten done? Well, actually writing down what you did get done and saying, you know, hey, these are the positive things I achieved. And this is my most important priority for tomorrow. Takes less than a minute. It's really helpful. I've actually looked at that bullet journal stuff, but of course they're selling a product, but you don't really need that product to make this approach work. But it speaks to this larger theme in the book, which is productivity is not nose to the grindstone. Many times productivity is taking a step back, taking a break, looking at the bigger picture. Because I have to tell you, the lizard brain inside of me, as soon as I hear you talking about this, thinks, oh, I don't have time for that. But to your point, you need to take time for that. And frankly, taking that time is going to make you more efficient and directed with the time when you actually do sit down and do the work. And there's another thing in the book that I just want to point out, which is do it the way you want to do it. Do it the way that fits for you. If the index doesn't appeal to you, then don't do an index. Do what's helpful. If something's not helpful, jettison it and do something else. Minda, you also write in the book about toxicity, toxic people, toxic workplaces, and you use as an example in there somebody that I actually know fairly well. So we're going to talk about him coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm talking this week with Minda Zetlin. She is a Seattle area journalist and a columnist for Inc. Online. She is the author of the new book, Career Self-Care, Find Your Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment at Work. Minda, you have one chapter in the book about toxicity, toxic people, toxic workplaces, and you use the the hard-driving culture of Microsoft and Bill Gates back in the day as an example. It was fascinating to me because you point out that Gates now puts out this impression of almost a grandfatherly figure. Back in the day, it was not that way at Microsoft. What can we learn from Microsoft back in the day, toxic cultures in general, and how to deal with them? I think Bill Gates is a fascinating example because he's been such a public person his entire life, which means that we all got to see him more or less grow up, right? The 20-something, he 
year old he was or, or whatever, I'm going to have the, the age wrong when he founded Microsoft, created this hugely successful behemoth of a company, uh, went through all the stuff that he went through, you know, and now, as you say, he's this grandfatherly figure. After Paul Allen died and Bill Gates posted something somewhere that was like a, a an homage, <laughs> I guess, to Paul Allen and their friendship, somebody at Inc. asked me to write a column about it. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it because right before that, I had read Paul Allen's memoir wherein he oh, described boy. how he was basically pushed out of Microsoft while he had cancer, almost for having had cancer by Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And I thought, man, you know, maybe you feel differently now, but I just, I, I, I just can't be nice to you about this. Um, Idea Man is the name of that book. Idea Man, Highly that's recommended. It. I was so impressed that he got over that which is a whole other lesson perhaps to be learned. but Actually, what you just said is probably one of the things about dealing with toxic people, which is the toxic people don't stay toxic forever. And coming to them with a degree of forgiveness and kindness is often like a really good idea. But yeah, so Bill Gates was, and there's um, some Barbara Walters special or something, there was this film clip of him sitting in a meeting, being incredibly dismissive and saying, no, 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 I, I'm going to get it wrong. But basically, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And he was presented as that was typical Bill Gates. Now, obviously, he's someone completely different out in the world. And I think he's someone completely different as a person, too. But that is certainly what we see from the outside. I think... Toxic people in toxic workplaces, maybe more difficultly, um, can evolve. I also think all of us in certain situations become toxic people ourselves. There's all different kinds of toxic people and different ways to deal with them, but not letting them push your buttons and remembering that everyone is human, everyone has their view of the world, and every behavior has some kind of meaning and some kind of cause is a place to start. It's fascinating how on this topic for me, everything clicks. And I know that might sound counterintuitive, but if you take care of yourself, if you get enough sleep, if you eat right, if you get away from work, if you reduce your stress, I think these tendencies toward toxicity tend to be minimized. And I have to say, if there's folks on the GeekWire team who are listening to this, they're going, oh my God, he's talking to himself because trust me, <laughs> I I have more than my share of moments and it's something that I really reflect on. And I got to say for something that happened even just recently, I had to stop myself after a few days and go, wait a second, stop this runaway train, go in and apologize genuinely. I mean, I was really sorry. It's so hard though, because there's ego wrapped up in it. It's, it's just, it's difficult. Um, so you have a test in the book for self-toxicity, and it's three steps. Do I tell people how honest, trustworthy, or generous I am? Do you have to tell them that? Do I justify my actions by pointing out that others do the same? And do I believe that just because I hate a behavior in others, I would never do it myself? What, though, can you do as an employee in a culture that's toxic? That is a tough one. And so, so first of all, let me back up and say, don't be so hard on yourself. You know, somebody once said to me something that really rang true, which is that workplaces are like families and they can be dysfunctional the way families are. We all spend 
even if we're doing all the things that I recommend in my book, we all spend a lot of time at work. We all get very emotionally engaged at work. A lot of social scientists happen to be pointing out at this moment in history that many of us identify with our work and our professions and our careers more than, you know, say a religious affiliation or uh, something else, much, much more than used to be the case. So when you've got all of that going on, you are going to have moments of not reacting to things exactly the way you ideally would. All of us will. Me and me too. You know, give give yourself a break there. (laughs) So in a toxic culture, uh, do you just leave? Probably the best solution. Yep. We tend to be a mobile workforce. You know, how much of that may or may not still be true in another six months, given what's happening in the economy, may be less clear, but unemployment is still low. And even if it's not, this, the United States, as countries go, people move from place to place and job to job much more easily than um, in many other nations. So take advantage of that fact. You may know that Elon Musk recently came out and said that not only did people have to come to the office and not work remotely, but they were expected to spend at least 40 hours a week in the office and people on the factory floor, he said, were expected to do more than that. Some people speculated that this was his way of trying to reduce the ranks of Tesla because he thinks that there are too many people there. And, you know, it's easier if people quit than if you have to select people to lay off. And then there's headlines about layoffs and all that stuff. Of course, he also sent out an email saying there was going to be a workforce reduction. And then it was seriously, as is often the case, uh, seriously unclear exactly what he meant by that. But, you know, I mean, a workplace that's toxic to some people might not be toxic to other people. Some people thrive in an environment that's highly competitive and where, as Bezos famously said, we're going to be nice and intense, but if we have to, we're just going to be intense. Um, You know, other people don't like that. So, I mean, there are certainly toxic workplaces out there, but it also might just be that it's a workplace that would be fine for someone else and isn't fine for you. But people should seek to find the culture that they fit into because there's a lot of different cultures and a lot of different ways of working out there. The Gates anecdote really struck me in part because some of the reporting that's come out, even just recently, there was a extremely illuminating report by Ashley Stewart, a reporter for Insider, about some of the cultural issues that persist at Microsoft, the bro culture that really got started back in the days of Gates and Balmer and how that has perpetuated. And I think to your point, I think Gates and Balmer have evolved. And I think that underneath that though, is that company that they formed when they were much younger in a much different era that is that is still struggling to deal with a lot of those things. And I don't expect you to have the answers on this, Minda, but that part of the book really struck me for that reason, how it's not just the toxic person, it's the impact that person has on the culture, which can outlast them in ways that are good and bad. I haven't seen that report, but it doesn't surprise me because I hate to say it, but basically it's the entire tech industry. There was this wonderful experiment that I think I, I wrote about in the book that at Stanford and it's, it's one of the simplest experimental designs I've ever heard of in my life. So what these researchers decided to do, they were trying to figure out gender bias in um, the tech world, which I, I'm assuming most of our listeners know is an ongoing and rather intractable problem. And um, 
So they did the simplest thing you can imagine. They just went and sat in on recruiting sessions because it was Stanford. And of course, all these tech companies were coming to Stanford to recruit. And what they observed was from the beginning, even before people were hired, even before they had graduated, they were getting the message that it's that bro culture. It's that, you know, come in and drink a bunch of beer and have a lot of posters of scantily clad women in science fiction movies. And um, if there's even a woman assisting and giving the presentation at all, she's handing out snacks and prizes. And if there is a woman engineer here, we talk over her just like we would if we were in a meeting. And they observe female students getting up and leaving. So people wonder why there's fewer women in STEM positions you know, when people talk about a pipeline problem, at the same time, the world of tech is communicating to women and to non-white, non-young uh, males um, that you're not necessarily the paradigm of what we want. You're not necessarily going to feel welcome here. So, of course, they go elsewhere. I, that's just, you know, a, a normal reaction. And that's where the problem needs to start getting solved. In the book, you cite an example from a Seattle entrepreneur named Jessica Eggert, and I want to talk about that right after this break. You're listening to GeekWire, and we will be right back. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm talking this week with journalist Minda Zetlin. She is the author of Career Self-Care, Find Your Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment at Work. Minda, Jessica Eggert really exemplifies this issue that you're talking about where the culture in a lot of workplaces is not empathetic to the point that it understands what people in different situations might be going through. And Jessica Eggert is a entrepreneur that many folks in the Seattle area may know. She became essentially at her prior job after she had her child and came back to work, what you called an invisible mom. What was her story and what can we learn from it? I actually met her because I was doing a story for GeekWire, which was a heck of a lot of fun. And I talked to a lot of people about specifically parenthood and being the parent of infants or small children and having a job. And what I learned from that is that even in a place like Seattle, which is as progressive as they come, the world is really not set up to accommodate new parents and in particular, I guess, new mothers in the work world. And that's something that really needs to be fixed everywhere. So that's the context in which I was talking to her. Um, she was talking about a previous employer in Florida, which she did not name, so I won't name. And she is a woman of color and she was, you know, like a lot of us, very ambitious and wanted to get on in her company. So as a woman of color in a mostly white company, she already felt all the things that people feel when they're in that situation, you know, kind of under extra scrutiny. And when she had her baby and then she came back to work, she noticed that people would say things like, oh, we can't give her this assignment because she has to go pick up the kids at five or other things that indicated to her that, that mothers were not really on the promotion path in this company. So what she did was, I mean, obviously they knew she had a baby, she'd had, she'd taken maternity leave, but she became a stealth mom in that she didn't put up any pictures of her son she pumped breast milk sitting on the bathroom floor because there was no place else to do it. She would actually, if I'm remembering right, she would actually schedule phantom appointments so she could go do this because 
nothing in her workplace accommodated who she was. And that's kind of a universal problem. We show up at work as human beings. And increasingly, and this kind of comes out of the pandemic too, um, we bring our whole selves to work. We bring our work into our homes. And that line between who we are when we're home and who we are at work needs to get breached. And Jessica was able to address this for herself by... She left. She left, started her own company, was able to create her own culture at the startup that she founded. Uh, I mean, I'm not fond of this term, but there's a reason for the term mompreneurs. I think a lot of women give up and take off from companies for exactly the reasons that she experienced. One of the reasons that I like the book is because I was able to jump around and sample parts that I knew were going to resonate with me or that I know I need to work on. It's the same reason that I really like the Harvard Business Review compilations on different topics where you can pick the overall topic that you're interested in and then go to the specific studies that you know will address your specific problems. So I really recommend the book from that perspective. Ultimately, are there some key lessons that that you would really want people to understand? Key things, themes that that really resonate with you after writing this book that perhaps we don't all internalize as much as we should? We think of our work and our lives in opposition. And that idea is implicit in the term work-life balance, right? And you've got two things struggling with against each other and they have to balance. And a lot of times it does feel that way. The fact is it goes both ways. Who I am professionally informs who I am as a human being. Who I am as a human being informs who I am professionally. And those two things don't have to fight it out. I had to learn to, to take time off and the importance of vacation. Vacation is really important for your health. There's statistics that show that people who don't take vacations are more liable to die of various causes. So your employer actually has every, every interest in having you take a vacation. But they're also important to your job because very often when you step away from work, you step away from work, but it's still there in your head. You see things from a different perspective and you find the creative solutions to problems that you wouldn't be able to see day to day sitting in your office. And that's why so many people say they have great ideas in the shower or they have great ideas, you know, sitting in a boat fishing or something like that or hiking through the woods. Because when that happens and the, the day to day craziness gets turned off, you get the chance to really engage the creative parts of your brain. All these things actually feed each other. They're not fighting each other. They're feeding each other. Minda Zetlin, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Minda Zetlin is the author of Career Self-Care, Find Your Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment at Work. See the show notes for links to the book and to her Inc. Magazine column, The Laidback Leader. Thanks for listening. Kurt Milton edits our show. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.